Welcome to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Now here's your Lighthouse Council host. Hello and welcome to The Beacon podcast. I'm Lighthouse Council's senior consultant, Martha Ross, and I'm happy to be here today with you and our guest, Brad Joya. Brad is here to talk with us about some of the changes we've seen over the years in the independent school landscape, and he's certainly the right person to talk about it. Having been a successful head at wonderful independent schools for nearly 40 years, am I right, Brad? Yeah, 40 years. Uh, A little longer, actually. A little longer. He was headmaster at Montgomery Bell Academy in Nashville, Tennessee, a historically terrific school, all male, all boys, uh, middle and upper school. And prior to that, he was 29 years as head at, uh, and he was headmaster and then turned into head as independent school nomenclature did evolve. And 29 years there, which is amazing to me because it's a very rigorous position. Prior to that, he was at the Darlington School for 18 years, and he was also Director of Admission and Financial Aid, as well as an instructor and coach at Darlington. He's having retired, I think, just about two years ago. He's been an educator and continues as an educator in residence at Belmont University in Nashville. And he was honored recently by the Tennessee General Assembly for his exceptional dedication to the students of Tennessee. So, very cool man with lots of knowledge and some good stuff to share. So, welcome, Brad. I'm delighted we have this opportunity to talk today. I'm very pleased to be uh, with you and to make some comments about the topics we're about to discuss. Thank you. I'm going to try and do it in three categories. One is students and parents, how they changed over your nearly 40 years in what they expect, what they want, how the students changed. The second set would be finances, how that has changed in independent schools and financing and fundraising, particularly the nuances or the major changes. And then the school culture, you know, diversity, inclusion, all of that, if it's changed and how it does. And I think particularly for MBA and that long term there, the role of boys school and education in today's world so students and parents how have they changed what are some of the real markers as you see saw in your career well i would probably uh, begin by saying that i think people by and large uh, are similar whether we're talking about the beginning of time or or now but a lot of the outside factors obviously have had an influence on all of us. Uh, you know, it'd be easy to cherry pick topics like social media, like the uh, complexity of raising children in, in a time that it, where there's so much loud noise about everything and it's mm-hmm. hard to filter what's uh, right and wrong. But I'll start with the students and I'll, I'll say that it is a much uh, more troublesome time and challenging time to to deal with young people because of the technology and mm-hmm. because of many of the mental health issues and because so many students are confused by the range of messages they hear every day and, and the instantaneous information, which makes it so hard to sort of sit back and discern what's right and what's wrong. 
And I think so few people are centered in terms of what they believe, what their faiths are, what really kind of holds them together. And I think when you do not have that fundamental understanding of who you are and what the universe is, it makes for a very complex world for them. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'd be positive and say that it's not changed significantly for me to engage with students. You know, once you work with them in the classroom, once you uh, are with them one-on-one within a school situation, they're basically the same people, uh, but you may have to be more thoughtful, have more strategies to understand how to reach them, what is important in terms of motivating them. And I think that has a lot to do with that fundamental nature of who they are and how complex and confusing the world is for them. But overall, I've loved working with students, whether it's 1977, six, when I first started, or 2023, when I retired. The parents, I'd say the biggest shift for me is that parents have depended more and more on schools to to give them guidance and to help them set the limits. So you've definitely seen a trajectory from a world where parents were more certain about what is right, what the limitations were going to be for their sons and their daughters. And now they're not quite as confident about setting those limits and being in charge. So they're looking for the school for a lot more direction, as simple as what the curfew times are or how how much freedom they ought to give their sons and daughters or how much expectation they should have uh, on a day-to-day basis. I think consequently, the schools have to be much more intentional. I found myself when I delivered messages either uh, in groups or written that I had to be strident almost and, and cognizant that I had to be very consistent in getting across what I knew is important and what I had to help them understand about raising their children. And I think that has a lot to do with what I said about the students. They're living in a world that's a lot more complex They don't understand all the information, all the mixed messages, all the technology and communications. And so it's harder for them to navigate those paths. And when it comes to realms like mental health, it is really hard for all of us, but particularly for parents. You know, I always would say and think, you know, parents are are hard just by their nature because we're all prejudiced as parents. And it's, it's hard for us to kind of be objective. Factor in these other topics that I was discussing, uh, it it makes it such a morass for them to to understand and and to be in charge of. Thank you. And so one of the things that occurs to me as you're telling this story is you'd have to really start to prepare for additional staff, different professional levels. Like, do you have yet school psychologists have counselors or you know back in the day 50 years ago 40 years ago even 30 years ago you didn't necessarily have that but now you really need that help don't you think well yes and it it has a manifold multifarious way of becoming part of your uh, ecosystem at a school because Mm -hmm. you know it it seemed an irony to me, and I'm sure to you, that, you know, as you thought, well, maybe 
things will become more simplistic with more technology or better strategies for fundraising or more effective counseling programs. You, you hired more people, not fewer. And That's so right. <laughs> it, it be, and, and that was hard for people like me running a school because I, I, I probably preferred the view that less was more not mm-hmm. just because of the financial management of the school, but because simplicity is, is so much better. You know, I went from a K-12 day boarding school to a 7-12, uh, and the K-12 school was co-ed, 7-12 school, single sex. You know, is the yeah. simplicity was beautiful in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. But I, on the other hand, I learned a tremendous amount when I was in a boarding school, and I'll probably get back to that subject when we talk about culture, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the issue about, let's say, the counselors or, or, or the mental health issues that you were referring to, not only did you have to have more experts or, or professionals on your staff, but your teachers had to be helped in, in terms of being somewhat of a mental health, health counselor. And, and they were dealing with issues that we certainly weren't seeing, you know, 40 years ago. Yes. And so that that has changed uh, terrifically in this yeah. time. Thank you. I, I agree. I could stay on this whole topic, you know, especially dealing with adolescents today in this right. world of everybody knows everything and is ready to go. And oh, yeah, yeah. But we'll move on to the finances. Talk a little bit about fund development, how um, you built buildings, you, you know, MBA and I'm sure at Darlington as well, uh, acquired property for expanded strategic moves in the future. Um, how did that kind of, how is it today? Or when you say the last 10 years that you were at MBA, how was fund development? Was it rolling right along? Well, I think I'm, I'm going to start with just the general sense of school finances and running a school. Okay. Uh, just as we were discussing how much more complex the organization became within schools, so did the financial structure. So that the head of the school was dealing with a much more sophisticated financial picture. Uh, he would have to know a whole lot more, or she, about uh, not just development issues, but uh, property issues, insurance issues. Liability. Liability issues that, of course, the legalities of independent schools, you you and I both know you could write a book about. There have been many books about that, I should say. <laughs> and and you, you you have to become a part-time lawyer and, and psychiatrist. And you, you need a psychiatrist sometimes. And you certainly need a lawyer <laughs> a lot of times. But uh, the, the financial structures of our schools in these 40 years have changed in such dramatic ways that independent schools went through a period of time where they were searching for heads of school, not from the traditional pathways, but from the development world. And Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that was the best moment in independent schools, because even though there might have been a need to hire people who knew a lot about development, a head of school really needs to have both the heart and the head to, to run the organization. So you, you want to know the students, you want to know the teachers, you want to have the empathy that uh, you don't necessarily have if you just come from a development path. I think that clearly independent schools have benefited from philanthropy in much, much greater ways 
in recent years than they did 40 years ago. There's the baby boom generation, the passing of wealth is evident in all of our schools. Our grandchildren are at a school in South Florida. We got a solicitation from the school yesterday, and I was smiling because the lowest level, which seemed like just making a small gift, was $1,000. The highest level was $200,000, which was pretty significant for an annual gift. But I think that is symptomatic of what you've seen. Now, they're in a high-end social area, so maybe that has something to do with it. But I think that uh, philanthropy has become a much much more nuanced uh, topic. And and you have to have a a lot of skill sets to be successful as a fundraiser. I think the uh, common thinking these days is that donors have a a greater micromanaging interest in in their gifts. I think that's true. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's rare uh, that people are going to experience what I did in my last five years at MBA, where we received a, a bequest for $110 million that was not uh, in any way uh, expected to be spent in a specific manner. So the donor simply trusted the school and gave everything to the school to decide how the school wanted to spend the money. That is rare these days. And Mm -hmm. and it's also rare even with annual gifts these days for uh, schools to expect somebody like you or me to give a $25,000 gift and not have that person then say, well, I want you to spend it in these three ways. And so that that makes it hard because independent schools depend on this kindness and generosity, but also hope that it'll not be restricted in certain ways so that we will have the freedom, whether Mm -hmm. your budget is 70, 30, 80, 20, in terms of what the tuition covers versus what uh, Mm -hmm. your endowment and your annual gifts are, but it's a much uh, murkier world now to to understand. And yet I still believe people want to give. And I think it's a spiritual act. I was as an English teacher by training. I didn't go to sophisticated schools to learn about the craftsmanship of finance or development. But what I did learn is that it is very much a people business. It is very important to look at this as a calling to help people learn to give, be transported in ways and transformed in ways because they are engaged in helping Mm -hmm. uh, institutions. And for me, it was never hard to ask for money because I knew it was for the school. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, dynamic is still very much intact. And I think human nature wants to give. I think individuals want to make a difference and I think it's up to you as, as a, someone who has that responsibility of developing your institution to articulate why it's important to the school, how that gift is going to be transformative for them and the school, and to navigate the complexity of, of uh, micromanagement, which uh, is, is not easy, but I think can be done. Okay, thank you. Yes. All good. Thank you. The final area, we'll move into school culture diversity, inclusion, all boys. Um, I read recently that the boarding school is still the number one emotional affiliation for givers. Uh, That's where their heart is from their boarding school, as Darlington would have been. And then college is next, and then their 
Now, MBA may be different. I don't know. I, it may be closer because it's such an intense experience. We're anyway. tied to culture, actually. And so yeah. I, I said I'd talk about three things in terms of your question, and, and that is the boarding aspect and what I alluded to earlier about what I learned, two, the boys' school world, and three, just the general importance of establishing a culture at a school. So I said earlier that I learned a lot when I was at Darlington because it was a complicated school, uh, day in boarding, K through 12. Uh, you work hard in a boarding school. You know, you get to Friday and you sort of look at your friends and say, I'm so glad it's Friday, just two days left in the week. And yeah. that is true. I mean, you are working extremely hard. But I think the boarding school experience gave me a lot of insight about the so-called triple threat of hiring faculty, you know, who teach, who coach, who work in the dormitory, who essentially live the life that Jefferson said that educational institutions should have. And that is, you know, where you teach people during the day, you live in their houses, you get to know them at night, you teach them at night as well. One of my pet peeves is I think the university world has sort of abdicated any responsibility in forming people. It's very transactional. Uh, I think where I am right now, Notre Dame, uh, uh, Georgetown, a number of other places, uh, probably some smaller schools are not so transactional. They do care about character issues and, and forming who people are. But I learned a great deal about that work ethic. And I think I brought that to, to MBA because uh, I wanted to uh, ensure that we hired people who cared about the students. And, and so I knew I could hire great math teachers, great English teachers, but it is really hard to find that person that's going to have the heart to want to be an advisor in the morning, to want to know and love the students. And, and for me, that was most important. And, uh, and so I, and a lot of that was informed through a boarding school, which I think comes out of your comment about why people may uh, give to the boarding school so much. But, but they're also, it's their life. I mean, they're living there. They're, it, they're consumed by that world. Uh, the second topic you sort of touched on was boys. And, and I love working at a boys school. First of all, I'd never been in an independent school until after college. I went to public schools. My college was private, the University of the South, Swanee, and, I, and my parents never graduated from high school. And although my students always thought I was born in an LLB catalog, I did <laughs> not have that background, which I always thought was a sort of secret strength and a gift because I had a certain perspective about who I was and where I am. And, and so when I got to MBA and I taught boys, I realized what a great opportunity this was because boys are by nature monosyllabic. They don't open up a great deal, but in a boys' school, they tend to open up more because the girls aren't there, because uh, they're the ones that have to be in the plays, in the chorus, et cetera. And so for me, it's been a terrific journey. I've been very involved in boys' education. I'm on a task force here at Belmont, um, very close to a writer named Richard Reeves, who's just put out a book called uh, Boys and Men. He's sort of one of the leading voices in the world on this topic. It's a very important topic these days, not because uh, we don't want women to do well. We want women to do better and better and continue to make the gains, but they don't want men to fall behind as much as they have fallen behind. And this is an issue. The last topic of culture is most important to me. 
because I think if you set the culture right, you will have a lot of success. And, and for me, culture certainly involves the DEI issues, although I like what I have at Belmont better than that phrase DEI, it's called hub, and that's hope, unity, and belonging. And that wow. is their version of DEI. And I think DEI has become so sort of supercharged that it doesn't always feel the best for everybody. But that's, that's a side point that I won't get into at any length right now. But for me, culture meant ensuring that the boys cared about their friends and, and others at the school, regardless of what they did. If they sang, if they were in theater, if they were in debate, uh, if they played lacrosse. And, and when I began to see the lacrosse players go into the plays or really appreciating their friends who were singers or who were thespians, I felt I got the culture right. And I also felt so heartened when they talked about it. And that became really my favorite thing I worked on. And That's so great. I think school culture is in, well, I think culture in businesses, families, schools, is the most important topic. Thank you. Yes, I agree. And do you think just quickly, boys schools here to stay? Are they're not uh, an anachronism? Well, you know, in, in the seventies, they became threatened, and so many schools went co-ed. You know, whether you yeah. look at the university world or the independent school world, the strong ones remained for, for mm -hmm. the most part. Uh, and and I still think there is, you know, I, I would frequently say. I thought MBA was a great school, not because it was a boys school. And I don't think an independent school is better than a public school or a Catholic school or a co-ed or a boys school is better than a co-ed school. I think it's the culture that will distinguish the school or the company or the family. And, and so I think these strong cultures at these great boys schools will give them the uh, focus and the, and the strength to to last, I hope, for many, many years. Well, thank you. I I agree, and my hopes are with you. But it looks like we've come to the end of our allotted time. Brad, and is there anything else, a little tip or a little bonbon that you want to share with us before we sign off? Or I've I've worked pretty hard here today, so don't no, feel no. Me. I think you covered <laughs> the topics well, and I, I think I just would add finally that in spite of any kind of changes or technology or social media, I'm still very optimistic about, you know, schools and young people and families. Although I think families are going to continue to need help in, uh, there's not a playbook about how to raise children or in fact, how to be married. <laughs> and yeah, and right. yeah, these are complicated topics. And we, as a society, we need to spend more time talking about them. Okay. One quick yes or no. Would you do it all over again? Yes. Yes, I thought so. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. And to our listeners, you can connect with Brad on LinkedIn and learn more about him by clicking on the links provided when this podcast is posted at lighthousecouncil.com.